Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca, and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available, and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited. I'm joined today by Ashley, who has been, I guess, part of my community on Instagram since day one. She's a perinatal psychologist or perinatal and infant mental health psychologist, I should say. She's just phenomenal. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, Beck, you're so sweet. I'm so thrilled and just feel also equally and mutually as excited to meet (laughs) you today Um, because, yeah, seeing your journey as well through your progress and, yeah, the perinatal stories, it's just such, you're making such a profound difference and I'm just so excited to be part of this journey with you so thank you for inviting me we were speaking before we started recording you haven't done this before you've you've written your story you've submitted Mm. interviews but not like this so I know how big of a deal that is thank you yeah I'm a bit nervous I hope that I can you know express myself in a succinct clear way that doesn't you know end in me rambling because this is the first time that I've done a chat like this where I actually haven't really prepared anything oh I love that Yeah, this time, I guess, because it's like a lived experience. I just, I wanted to be as authentic as I possibly could. I'm I'm winging it and hoping that everything sort of comes together. I'm sure it will. So I'm going to start randomly. Your your expertise is in perinatal and infant mental health Mm. um, as a psychologist, although Perinatal and infant mental health was not always your specialty. You worked in disability, in rehabilitation, youth mental health. And what I think is phenomenal is when people transition to the perinatal and infant mental health space, it's usually because of their own lived experience. Yes. And I I noticed on your website, you wrote, um, it was either a turbulent transition or an intense transition to motherhood that prompted that change. (laughs) And Even, I mean, this is so random, but like a year ago, you wrote an article along the lines of when a perinatal psychologist becomes a mother. Mm. And you wrote, I naively thought, what did it say? I naively assumed that I had the skills and I knew or I had the skills required for raising children. Yeah. It became abundantly clear <laughs> how unprepared I, I really was. Yeah. So to give, I guess, a bit of context, absolutely at this stage of my career, um, my special interests, I try not to use the word specialised per se, because I think I'm always learning and I'm always mm. evolving and growing. Um, but certainly the areas of interest that, that strike me the most is definitely working with mothers, working with families. Um, so certainly in that perinatal space, as you probably know, I run the Circle of Security program as well. So it's a really strong driving factor for me to work on relationships within a family unit, which is where the perinatal um, and infant mental health side of things can come in. But yes, prior to becoming a mum myself, I had a bit more of a diverse range. And I think, you know, within the process of becoming a registered psychologist, usually we have to sort of work in different fields and different areas. We have to yeah. work, you know, adults for a certain amount of time. We have to work with children for a certain amount of time. We have to do certain amount of assessments and those kinds of things, which I think is great. Uh, but it allowed me then to have a very generalised and broad 
I guess, range of experience. And and that was great. I actually, I loved um, each stage of my career that I was in. I learned so much in each different stage. Some stages I will not probably want to, to go back to for lots of different reasons. But before I fell pregnant with my daughter, who's my eldest, I was working in private practice predominantly with children and also with some adults, just more from a general mental health perspective too, but a lot with children, a lot working yeah, with families or children with um, a neurodiverse mm-hmm. you know, background. And so they're needing like some emotional support or you know, um, social support or whatever that might have looked like as well. So again, like my brain was like, I work with families and, ch- and children all the time. It can't be hard. Anyway, how I was very quickly rocked to my core And I think it was complete karma because I was probably too cocky going into parenthood, given my background, I suppose. I mean, I I kind of thought how much more educated, quote unquote, educated could I be? Clearly a lot. I could have, I was, I was in for a, probably quite literally the most profound learning experience that I have probably ever gone through. 13, no, yeah, 13 years of school, six years of uni, and I have done most amount of learning that I have ever done in the last three years. So... (laughs) Um, and also just like from an emotional perspective and mature perspective, like a lot of people. So yeah, my background um, in psychology, yes, working lots of different fields, but now given my own experience and the, and the whiplash that I experienced, it really, but I haven't felt, I, I must say though, like in the space that I'm working now, I don't, and although I enjoyed previously, I don't think I, I had experienced or knew what passion was Mm. now I thought I was passionate about different spaces like when I worked in drug and alcohol I thought I was really passionate about that space and I think at the time I was enjoying that when I worked in youth mental health and I worked in yeah residential settings I was really you know I I was enjoying that work but I just didn't I didn't know that I wasn't as passionate about those things until now so Mm. here I am And I think it's so obvious for anyone who has viewed, let's say your website, but even your Instagram space, just how passionate you are. And I love what you said as well about constantly learning, but that's always ongoing. And I think that that is just phenomenal. So good on you. Thank you. I think what you've said as well is it just goes to show mental ill health, especially in motherhood, in parenthood, doesn't discriminate regardless of how much you know. Like, I know I say that all the time, but like you know, psychologists, social workers, doctors, they themselves end up feeling the emotional and mental toll that motherhood can bring. So I hope you give yourself some compassion for that. Thank you. It's taken a long time. It's taken Mm -hmm. a very long time to get to the point of self-compassion for myself. And I guess, you know, because this has has been such a learning experience for me as well, but because I wear dual hats, Mm -hmm. obviously I, I sit on, on both sides. So I am a mother of two and I have, you know, experienced yeah, a lot of struggle. But then alternatively to that, you know, I work on and I hear stories and I, I'm, a, I'm in the journey in, the, in that healing space for my patients as well. But I do hope that, that you know, who, whoever listens to this conversation that we're having today, Beck, can hopefully have that kindness to themselves that it's not mm. because they've done anything wrong or it's no. not because they haven't learned enough or it's not because they're not doing the right job. Uh, you know, I, and I say this probably almost on a daily basis that I think the quote unquote struggle of parenthood and that looks like that's diff- that looks different for different people mm. but I think it's universal I am mm. yet a, a parent who finds every single aspect of parenting easy it just I just don't think it exists and and I just think you know whether it's infancy toddlerhood whether it's sleep feeding 
external family crossing boundaries like who knows what it is you know what I mean at some stage someone will find something challenging and I think that that is what's universal about parenthood and when we're talking about well what are these universal things it does make us realize that hold on we're just human I'm just like you you're just like me I'm just like everyone else we find these things and challenges it is it's universal and I'm not immune to it like anyone else so (laughs) yeah and I mean you raise a good point parenthood is hard and I think motherhood is hard and I think we need as a society as a culture to actually acknowledge that but I also think it's so hard when you're in the thick of like what you experience antenatal anxiety and then postpartum anxiety and depression Mm. it's hard to know the boundary between what is normal hard versus what is mental ill health hard correct yeah um I think that's a really interesting point that you make because in hindsight I can recognize that I had quite severe antenatal with my daughter um it was not noticed at the time yeah and that's something that I, I still feel sad about today because as a mental health professional, these are the flags that I look out for. And so I almost feel sad for that version of me when I was pregnant with my daughter back in 2019 because it was so blatantly obvious how severely anxious I was, but it just wasn't picked up on. But fast forward to about, I would say, I think I was seven months postpartum with my daughter um, only then through accessing services like Panda did it really get brought to my attention that I was really quite suffering? Mm. And I, think I, I, I recognise I was in denial. And even leading into, into so I, it should have been a flag because for seven months before I actually conceived my daughter, that was all I could think about. So I probably should stipulate too, I actually have a diagnosis of autism. So I'm actually I have a neurodivergent brain. So my brain does get fixated on certain things. And mm. at the time, my very special interest was all about pregnancy and conception to a point that it, like I often describe, like what's healthy versus unhealthy, right? What's helpful mm. helpful, and it wasn't helpful for me because it impacted on my ability to function. Um, and when it, when these kinds of like special interests or, or you know fixated interests or whatever it might be, or in, and or anxiety, when does it become a problem? It becomes a problem when it impacts on your ability to have outings and go to work and look after yourself and all of those kinds of things. And and even leading up to when I conceived my daughter for seven months. It was obsessed, obsessed with all everything to do with babies, conception, how do you look after them, how do they grow, what do they do, you know, all of these kinds of things. I was just like it just, I was, became immersed in learning all about anything that I could really. And I realised now that that was really the beginning. That was a, it was the beginning of things really cascading from there. And I think it got really quite bad six months postpartum. I'm sort of dropping and changing apologies. Yeah, of course. But, postpartum because that six month mark was when I had to return to work Mm. so I was returned to work at six months Uh, my daughter didn't take a bottle despite our best efforts Um, it's 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 not really funny but everyone I talk about everybody's journey being different Mm. but just being universal you know I I almost had the opposite problem I I was actually very blessed and very lucky to be able to breastfeed I'm not saying Mm. that that was a bad thing it was beautiful um, however, I had the opposite problem where I could not get my child to take a bottle and it was just, it was actually really quite horrific. Anyway, so at the six month mark when I returned to work and my daughter wasn't taking a bottle and uh, she was too young for solids, I was traveling from work to her daycare during the day to breastfeed her, driving back home. And it was during COVID, so I was working from home, which was lucky. And the daycare was about nine or 10 minute drive down the road, but I was doing three trips a day to do breastfeeding, come back home. I wasn't getting a chance to eat myself. I don't know downtime myself. And all I was finding was that I was just getting more and more swamped with then work and also the nature of my work. So I did obviously return to being a psychologist um, and 
looking after this child who wasn't feeding and like feeding from bottle solids was a very very long journey for for my daughter and even now at three and a half I can still barely get her to eat one meal a week um she's a bit she's a chronic snacker um she's 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 getting there she's healthy and she's well but it was very stressful at the time of course and so yeah everything just kind of felt like it was really snowballing and it was about a month after that after I returned to work I was reaching out and trying to get counseling support and you know I didn't even know that there was such a thing as like a perinatal psychologist I didn't no one I spoke I went to my GP all the time no one was flagging anything no one did any screeners for anxiety depression no one was really yeah I guess asking the right questions so (laughs) it's heartbreaking yeah it I think so and I feel very sad when I look look back at that time because again everything's retrospective but it seems so obvious to me now how hard it was and how much I was struggling and, and how challenging I was finding it and I just don't know why I just didn't get why no one was paying attention I suppose like you know, when people come and go you know you put on a happy face and you you know you do all the masking I suppose and you you know you do the entertainment and you're like look how cute she is and then after an hour they leave and then you go back to this hole that you were in and you you know you pop your head out for a moment but people don't see that so yeah, it just kind of got missed, I suppose. Yeah, and I noticed um, I want to go back to the article because you did write in there that every postpartum appointment that you had was about your daughter and nothing was about you and you were dismissed quite frequently as, oh, it's just first-time mother worries. Yeah. And, again, that just breaks my heart. Like we have to fight so hard to get any focus on us not just the baby and that when we do voice let's say some of our anxieties or our concerns or quote-unquote first-time mother worries it gets dismissed yeah it was almost like a gaslighting experience um yeah look my daughter also had cow's milk protein intolerance yeah a soy intolerance as well which was quite um profound so she was quite she was quite sick like she was quite unwell, and it took a long time for us to figure out why she was in so much pain, why does she have eczema and these rashes all over her body, why does she scream for 20 hours of the day. Um, it took a very long time to figure that out. And once we did figure that out, again, despite my efforts of trying to get her to take some to bottle and, and formula, I couldn't. So I had to have a really restricted diet. And so because of that, and also I should add, like we've actually just recently, she's just recently had surgery to clear her adenoids and nasal passage because she couldn't breathe. And I had flagged this back when she was an infant. So I remember going into the GP about five or six months. And I said, you know, like, she's not breathing properly. Like, she's snoring. She's breathing with her mouth open, et cetera. And they just, you know, again, kind of brushed it off and sort of said, oh, you know, she'll... um, She'll grow out of it. But she didn't. And now here we are three and a half years later and she finally got her surgery. And first time in her life she's actually sleeping and it's magnificent. However, there was a lot of compounding factors, I think, at that time you know, obviously she wasn't sleeping. She was very uncomfortable. She was going through a lot of pain and she was clearly distressed. She was chronically overtired. And then, you know, by extension, so was I. Mm. You know, extension of that, I wasn't eating the way that I would have liked to have eaten because of my restricted diet. I could not get any sleep because of having to, to get up several times for her. And when I say several times, I'm talking like every 40 minutes for yeah. months, months, like a year even. Even up until recently, she was still waking four or five times a night. It was really only at the surgery done so really her entire lifespan has been chronic but um when she weaned off breastfeeding my husband could then go in and, and settle her um mm. but she 
weaned from breastfeeding until she was about 14 months. So at least for that first 14 months, it was all on me. So all of these things, I like I recognize, yeah, there's a lot of compounding factors here. However, there were also a lot of red flags around probably the things that I was thinking at the time, how little energy that I had at the time. Yeah, I guess more just like around those intrusive thoughts. And because I think all of these other things kind of took precedence, they took the focus. And then I was just a consequence of, oh, well, when she sleeps better, then you'll feel better. And when she you know, eats more solids, then you'll feel better. And then, you know, when she can take a bottle, then you'll feel better. And of course, none of those things happen overnight. And they take a very long time. And so, yeah, I did feel quite dismissed. Um, I should also say, too, that when I was nine months postpartum, I fell pregnant with my son. Mm. It was a very different pregnancy experience, and I can talk about that if you want me to. But um, I got a blood test done, the usual blood test, and what it flagged for was actually overactive thyroid, hypothyroidism. And that can mimic a lot of anxiety symptoms too, so things like the high heart rate and, um, you know, changes in your appetite and headaches and that kind of thing. And it's not to say that I, I wasn't anxious. I definitely was. Um, however, there were so many things. It was just like one thing after another after another, and it yeah. just took so long. And the only reason it actually even got diagnosed was because I felt pregnant. And I wonder how long it would have gone on for before somebody like a GP said, hey, let's get some bloods done. Because at no point in my in my postpartum with my daughter until I fell pregnant with my son did anybody do any blood tests ever. Not, not a single blood test was done throughout an entire nine-month period. And I just I, – I work with mothers obviously now, and I'll say to them, like, tell me your birth experience. Tell me how you're feeling. When did you get a blood test last? Because I know, even if it's not thyroid, for example, but, you know, if they've had hemorrhaging or, um, yeah, significant blood loss or even if they are breastfeeding, you know, your body has to produce more fuel, obviously, mm-hmm. for that process. And it depletes women more, obviously. So, yeah, it, it just no one – it frustrates me even just now, like – when I think back and I reflect on that and uh, yeah, it's just, there were so many signs missed, but I do think, you know, I suppose if we look at the silver lining, I do think that's helped me be a better clinician because I now hear certain things and I'll go, Oh, that sounds interesting. But I'll come back to it because I don't want to brush past things that might seem like nothing. But in reality, I'll go, I actually know that that's probably a lot more and no one's asked them these questions or it might be the first time that they've had a space where they can actually talk about it. And I think that's really important for me because I just didn't get that. I didn't get that space. And I'm sorry you had to go through that, as you said, in order to be, quote unquote, the better clinician. (laughs) I'm assuming you were a phenomenal clinician regardless, but I am sorry you had to experience that in order to realise what is actually what you yourself needed. Thank you. I think it just, what I hope, if anything, I just hope it makes me, what I really, really always aim for is to be authentic. And I just always hope, even if I haven't had the exact lived experience that that individual has had, like not that we have to as clinicians have lived everything. Of course. um, But we know what struggle feels like. I know what discomfort feels like. I know what profound sleep deprivation to the point of you feel like your organs are shutting down feels like. And those are the things that I think people can, can relate to I guess they just want somebody who, yeah, who's authentic in that experience of saying, yeah, man, I get it. Like it's, it is actually really hard. And I'm not just saying that because the textbook tells you to say it's hard. Like I'm saying, cause I'm a human and as a human, I've, I've lived a similar human experience to you. And I know that that is truly, truly hard. Yeah. yeah. Going back to pregnancy mm. and the antenatal anxiety, you mentioned it was there pre-pregnancy prior to conception mm. and I'm assuming it then escalated during the pregnancy itself did you want yeah. to talk about the antenatal anxiety absolutely my pregnancies for both of my babies were very different so I would say 
absolutely hands down antenatal anxiety for my daughter, who is, who's my oldest. Um, however, I was in a very dark place for my son, so very different mindsets. But, yeah, so I guess I just wanted to mention that because it was not the same experience. Both were not enjoyable, if I can just say. Everybody has very different experiences, and I'm so respectful to hearing the beautiful experiences that many other women do have throughout their pregnancies. Unfortunately, that's not something that I can relate to. <laughs> um, but for me, I, I just couldn't. Yeah, pregnancy. I just, I've had my two babies. I'm very grateful and extremely blessed to have them. They're the absolute light of my life. However, my mental health could not withhold another pregnancy. And I know that from the bottom of my soul. Um, so, in saying that, for the antenatal anxiety, yeah, gosh, um, I think pretty much from the day that I found out that I was pregnant with her, any and every worry that you could possibly think of, catastrophic happening uh, to either myself and or her, obviously. The worst thing for me was because, I mean, I mean, a lot of people find this too, but for me, I, you can't see inside of you, right? So your brain just, it just, it just goes on this whirlwind and this spiral of, and I could never get myself out of these what if thoughts, you know, because it's like, but I can't see. So it could actually be true, you know? But look, I think every, every antenatal appointment, um, everything to me just triggered this profound sense of worry, stress, extreme overwhelm so I did not respond I hope I say this word correctly I did not respond well to the physical changes that my body went through yeah. and I, I think a lot of women feel you know naturally we get larger and we get we hold fluid and we get pains and all those kinds of things it was a very very foreign real disconnect from my physical body um, I was at a time of my life where um a strong interest of mine at the time was being very fit and 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 I was very I was quite proud of myself for being quite strong at that time not so much anymore but um at that time I guess I did struggle a lot with my physical changes and my physical appearance and what made it extremely difficult was each antenatal appointment that I had to go to that had to weigh me yeah and I would get to the point of sickness in my stomach pressure on my chest heart beating through my throat like I just I could not because it was another reminder of something that I can't control, something that my body is changing. It was just, yeah, it was it was not a pleasant time. And then in saying that, given that it was my first pregnancy and I was in a fit stage of my life, um, I did not have a large bump. And when you don't have a large bump, everybody wants to tell you that you don't have a large bump, that your bump is very small. Are you sure you're pregnant? Um, you just look like you've had a cheeseburger. Like there was always an opinion on the size of my bump. And so I felt very, very self-conscious that I wasn't pregnant enough. I My body wasn't doing enough even then. It wasn't. It didn't look the way that other people told me my body should be looking. So it actually caused more more worry than, than obviously mm. I I don't know if people were trying to be um, kind or if they just kind of blurt things out and don't realise the impact that that has on people, maybe a bit of both. But my anxiety just went to my baby stopped growing, I'm going to have a miscarriage or a stillbirth, nothing's not working properly, I don't have enough fluid in my body, um, I'm starving my baby, even though I wasn't starving, I was eating fine, but, you know, my bot my, my brain went to my baby's just simply not growing. And and, and look, the, the, the midwives and the specialists, I wouldn't say that they were much better, to be honest, because they do the measurements every single time. And I got to the 37-week mark and they said, your baby's way too small. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? Like we're 37 weeks, we're right at the end. Like how could this be? 
they sent me for a quote-unquote emergency growth scan. And it took about two days before I could get in to get the scan done. And I was just in such a state of worry. I couldn't talk about it. I'd start crying. I was like constantly tracking her, her movements. And I'm like, is she still moving? Is she still alive? Like, what's going on? Anyway, and, you know, I got in there and they did all the scans and everything. And, and she was fine. Like, she was healthy. She was a beautiful size. Nothing to worry about. But that, you know, it was just every single comment about every single thing just made the experience so much more overwhelming. I felt so foreign from my body. I had a lot of pain around ligament. That's what it was. So I, because I was quite active, I tried to stay doing walks and, and swimming in the Pilates for a while there. So I tried to stay as active as I possibly could. But the pain was so profound that it would actually almost like immobilize me for a day or so after. And then I was convinced that if I can't move my body, my baby's going to you know, be harmed by this. So, and then it would just became this worse spiral. So ironically, doing exercise became worse for my mental health in those late stages of pregnancy. And then I, um, when I went into labor with my daughter, I was actually in prodromal labor for a week. And it was very, that was anxiety producing too, because being my first pregnancy, I don't know what labor is meant to look like. I don't know what it's meant to feel like. I think I'm having contractions, but then they would stop and start and stop and in any way and then I just yeah every day I'd get fixated on today's the day I've got to have a baby and I was doing everything that I could I was bouncing on the balls I'm drinking the teas I've got the clary sage I've, I'm doing you know massage I'm doing everything that I can because I need to get this baby out because to me in my mind if she's out of my womb then she's safe quote unquote safe and because I couldn't see anything I was convinced that the longer she's inside of me for the more chances are something horrific is going to happen but then, of course, postpartum hits and the anxiety doesn't go away because then all the external <laughs> worries and all the things that could go wrong on the outside hit. Yeah, and I mean, I relate so much to nearly everything you just said. Sorry, I've got tears in my eyes because the, you're right, the anxiety during pregnancy is just, it's very easy to say once the baby's here, once I can hold the baby in my arms, Mm. things will be okay and all my worries they'll go away because I'll have that certainty I'll have that control but reality is that's that's not how it works unfortunately unfortunately not something else just replaces those thoughts yeah so in terms of birth Mm. are you comfortable talking about that did that impact your postpartum experience it's interesting because um my birth of my daughter was actually from a textbook perspective wonderful it really was um i i am extremely lucky that nothing went wrong from a medical perspective she was healthy i was healthy however i think my memory of that of my labor it kind of shifted i think because i was in such a shock that it took probably a good month or so before it really sunk in that i even had a baby but the feeling it's so interesting because the Memories are the same, but the feelings behind them change. Mm. So my, my, my labor with my daughter, it was very, it was very straightforward. My, my water's broke in the morning. I called my midwife. She said, you know, come down whenever you want. I had a shower. I had some breakfast, went in. Contractions had started. They said to me, you can either stay at the hospital, but you're on a timer because if we admit you, then you've got a certain amount of time to have this baby. And sometimes that can cause more stress or you can go home. And I said, beauty, I'll go home. And I'm actually so glad that I did. I went home and my husband was there and it was just us and it was amazing. And I was laboring at home and it was beautiful. It was, it was, it was a really lovely progression, but very quickly from about, I think only probably about three hours after my waters had broken, 
I was having super intense contractions, like really, really fast. I would say like 10 or 15 seconds in between contractions. So we called my midwife and she's like, oh, well, you're probably not going to have a baby today. So you can probably still stay at home for a bit longer if you want. But like, if you really feel like it, you can come on down. And, um, and my husband was on the phone and, and anyway, he got off the phone. What did she say? And he said to me, I was like, no, nah, we're going, we're going. And I'm so glad that I made that call because if I had listened, I would have had a baby at home or I would have had to have called an ambulance. So um, the hospital was probably about a 12 to 15 minute drive. By the time I got to the hospital, I could no longer wait there on my legs. So my contractions were so intense and so frequent. My husband had to drop me off and then he had to go and find a car park. And so here I am, this waddling pregnant woman, can't barely walk. I couldn't like hold my weight up anyway. And security came over. To, Are you in labor? I was like, yes. They're like, oh my God, sit down. And it was, anyway, so they came down because I think they thought I was having a baby right there. And then they had like this birthing backpack thing and everything with them. And they're like, why are you alone? Because all they could see was just, just me. This Like I had nothing with me. I had no bags. I had nothing. You lose. Well, I lost my ability to talk and I couldn't wait there. Anyway, then my husband appears. Anyway, they send me upstairs. I get on the gas. And probably within like less than an hour, um, I was fully dilated. So I think the the whole, that whole from like the time when my contractions got quite consistent to the point where she was born was about five hours. And look, she was beautiful. And I think as it happened so fast, I was in such a shock. But initially, probably a couple of days after, I was so proud of myself because I guess, you know, just so you get that like feeling of like, oh my gosh, like I just endured <laughs> This birth and it was incredible and it was crazy and it was painful and you know all this kind of stuff but you know what sat with me afterwards out of all of that was the midwife her response to me when I when we phoned up at home and how dismissive she was and, and even when we got to the hospital and she came down she's like oh you're not meant to be here today you're not meant to be here till tomorrow and anyway I'm actually kind of relieved because there was a second midwife there and I really do think that she kind of was really the the driver of my whole birthing experience over like she wasn't even my primary midwife I had the primary one who was a bit like airy fairy and then I had the secondary one and I think if she wasn't there I yeah I almost questioned because because I had started involuntarily pushing and she's like are you Ash are you pushing I was like yeah I can't help it she's like oh my god and she knew that that was I was ready but the other midwife still hadn't checked me wasn't paying attention and I actually remember she was trying to get me to walk around and go to the toilet and I couldn't wait there. So I'm like, I actually, and I know moving around is, is a wonderful technique for so many women, but you need a tailor. This is my two cents. You need a tailor the way that you're treating the woman to the symptoms that are going on. They need to be observing. And I don't know why, but she just kind of was like, oh, well, you need to be moving around and now you need to go to the toilet. And I, I can't do these things. Like I actually can't do these things and you're not listening to me when I tell you I can't do these things anyway. So it's not to say, I don't want to project and say that something horrific would have happened. But that's where my brain went to. What would have been worst case scenario if this secondary midwife wasn't there and noticing how I was feeling and checking me when I needed to be checked? Anyway, so I think what stuck with me from that is really just like how I did not feel listened to. I kind of felt like I was being a bit silly, like a bit dramatic and just not really kind of taken seriously. And in actual fact, I was I was quite literally about to birth my child. But look, I must say I was extremely lucky. My daughter was beautiful. She was exactly how she should be. There was no concerns around her size. I was very healthy. We were very, very lucky. I think it was just more how was I made to feel? That was so scary because I had never done anything like that before and because I was in prodromal labour for a week beforehand. If it wasn't for the fact that my waters had broke, that's how I knew that this was the real deal. 
But, you know, this is a brand new experience. I'm already overwhelmed. I'm already scared. I, I've never done this before. Yeah, I think we're very lucky, but it was the way that I was made to feel. But I'll, conversely, for my son, everything went wrong for my son. And it was such a different feeling that I got at the end of the support that I had for my team. I think that's what really... I find a lot of women, they often share that too. You know, they share that similar feeling of if I was listened to and I was validated and I was given time to be listened to, that even if even if things medically didn't quite go the way that they had foreseen or, or wanted them to go, um, they still felt different about it because they were listened to and empowered. And I'm sorry that that happened because you're right. How you are made to feel about an experience really does stay with you regardless of whether it's textbook on paper or not. Exactly. Okay, so coming into postpartum, you know, we're hoping, you know, the anxiety will go away, baby's here. I guess <laughs> looking back, obviously we only know these things in retrospect. Mm. Looking back, what was a moment that stands out to you that, okay, things really hadn't gotten better, things really weren't okay? It took a long time, I think. Like I said, I think around that seven-month mark, things really kind of got brought to light around how much more challenging this really was. I must add, too, like my husband was a beautiful support, but like a lot of first-time parents and partners who have a spouse who are going through postnatal anxiety and depression, he was, by extension, subsequently also feeling highly anxious and and I think he was struggling with his mental health too but again I think that's a retrospect thing like at the time I think we both were just in such survival I wasn't noticing him really and he wasn't noticing me so mm. he he was trying so hard but from a mental health perspective I think we both probably missed each other's signals that we were really struggling mentally which made it hard then for him to create space for me and I just not make space for him at all so yeah I don't I don't think there was any one particular event it was I think it was probably more so just the fact that I had reached out and started getting some counseling support myself and talking to the to the counsellors which were just so beautiful is this through Panda sorry it was through yeah. Panda, yeah and I'm so glad that I did and I felt so silly it took such a long time I really should have contacted someone far sooner but it was my ego that I think that was stopping me and I was just kind of like no I don't have depression like <laughs> the thing is I have actually gone through bouts of depression in different stages of my life. And so I compare it back to then. I was like, well, I don't feel the same that I felt then, so therefore it can't be the same. But, you know, obviously it was it was the same but different. Same, same but different, different, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think when, when people can reframe and rephrase things back to you. So I'd get up and I'd call and I'd say, I'm, I'm feeling this. I experienced that. My daughter screamed here. And they'll go, okay, so what you're telling me is X, Y, Z. And I'll go, oh, my God, I didn't even think of that. Do you know what I mean? And all they've done is kind of just told me the things that I've just told them, but they've just done it in a way that made me listen and made me realise, hold on, yeah, actually, no, there is probably more struggle and mental health barriers here. So we moved to Brisbane because this was up in North Queensland and we moved to Brisbane when my daughter was like eight and a half months old. Um, Just before you got pregnant as well. My goodness. So, yes, um, very, very fast. Lots of, again, coming back down to changes and transition. Mm. So that was starting a new job, living in a new city, found out I have another baby on the way, no friends <laughs> or immediate support. So it was just, yeah, it was, it was a whole other time. But I, I started seeing a psychologist myself at that, that time and I knew because I, especially when I found out that I was pregnant with my son, I was like, I cannot go through the feeling that I had again she said to me in a very gentle and beautiful way Ash 
even though you are resistant to hearing, you need to hear me when I say to you, you have these traits around these mental health struggles and you have these characteristics. And the longer that we push them to the side and the longer that we kind of deny putting language to the feeling, the more difficult it is for you to go through that healing process. And she's so right. She was so right. I was like, no, don't you tell me. <laughs> no, I was, I was, I was a good client, but uh, <laughs> I didn't go in there and argue with her the whole time. But I was like, don't you try to do CBT on me. It doesn't, I, if I could do that, if it worked for me, I'd be doing it myself. Um, it's a great, it's a great evidence-based strategy, by the way. It's just that I knew all the tricks, you know, like you can't trick to thinking something different because I already knew all the tricks. Um, but she was lovely and, and she was right. And I think because I, I wasn't calling myself out for what I was experiencing and what I was going through, and once we called it out, then I felt almost like I didn't have to keep trying to fake it because I think for such a long time I was trying so hard to prove that my mental health was well and that it was all of these other things that were causing all of these stresses. And, and not to say that those things weren't stressful because they absolutely are. So people listening who have, you know, babies with intolerances and sleep difficulties and they don't take bottles, it's not to ever disregard. Like those things are so profoundly stressful. But I was putting so much emphasis, all the blame. I was blaming, unfortunately, my daughter. I was blaming my daughter. And it took, I needed to be really real with myself and actually really realize, oh, hold on. No, Ash, like you got to own this. This is just what it is. Once we name it, then we can start to work through it. Name it to tame it, right? So true. I know, I know. I know all these things, but like it took a long time and I'd say it probably took a good year postpartum for me to really come to terms. But I also think that was kind of slightly delayed because, you know, we did have a huge move. Um, I did fall pregnant and my mental health around that time took a, quite a significant plummet. You know, there's financial stresses when you have a baby and you've only returned to work and now all of a sudden you've got another baby and you've move cities and all of these kinds of things. So there was a lot of compounding factors as well. Of course. And I think what you said as well is interesting. It's like, oh, I was blaming the other factors. And that, you know, very, very clearly and evidently impacts their mental health. And in theory, when those things improve, our mental health improves. That's the theory, right? But reality is that that's not always the case. You know, feeding could improve. Sleep could improve. That doesn't take away the mental health challenges that you're dealing with necessarily. And I think that that's something important we need to know, because as you said, the doctors were telling you, oh, when your daughter's intolerance is fine or your sleep's fine, then you'll be fine. It's not necessarily the case. And I think that a lot of people don't realise that. They don't realise that, absolutely. And I think because it took me a good year to realise, yeah, those external things were difficult, but... I think what was just so profound for me was my sense of identity. I had no idea who I was anymore. And I think because I had put so much emphasis on hobbies and things that I had in pre-baby life, like things like fitness was a really big thing for me at the time and, and socialising. And when you strip all of that away and you're just kind of left to fumble around trying to figure out, well, well now what? And for such a long time, I kept trying to go back to that. You know, I joined a eight-week challenge or whatever it was. It was 10 weeks postpartum. I think back now, I was like, you're crazy. Like, what were you doing? Your body wasn't even healed yet. But in my mind, I was like, the faster I go back to doing the things that I did beforehand, the better I'll feel. And, and that never happened because I needed to grieve that that version of myself literally does not exist anymore. And it took me a very long time, probably when I saw that psychologist and she called me out and that was good. And we just labeled it and called it for what it was. 
it allowed my healing journey then to, I suppose, grow a new identity or, or maybe just a slight, not to say brand new, because there's still obviously components of myself, like who I was beforehand, but definitely I didn't have access to things like I could have access to before. I just, I, my values had changed. I didn't prioritize the same things anymore. Yeah, so I think for me, it wasn't so much like my daughter could have stepped all the way through. That doesn't change my identity. It was more around I had to look inside of my sense of self to a core. And that was really scary. That was a really scary process for me. In many ways, for, for me, going from zero children to one was far more challenging than going from one to two. And there was only 80 months between my children. And so I had two under two and they're chaotic even now. They're just like the, the chaos has not slowed down by any stretch. Like they're the mischievous little creatures they are. Like they gang up on me and everything. But, uh, for me... Again, I guess it's the flip side, right? Like external, I have more stress because I'm constantly run off my feet, run a business now, and I have two toddlers. But internally, I am far more at ease and far more confident with who I am as a person, my sense of identity, my sense of core to a belief, my values. I understand myself a lot more. I'm a lot more forgiving towards myself. So it's almost like the flip side. So like back then, I was like blaming the external, not recognizing the internal. Now here I am. I'm like, I recognize the internal. I can now take on board all the external chaos. And yeah, just I feel like, one to two was easier in that regard because I already was a mum. I was already in, you know, matrescence. So therefore it wasn't completely new. And I wish, oh, there's so many things that I wish. I wish that somebody had had that conversation with me when I was pregnant. And I wish that someone had said to me, not to say necessarily, oh, Ash, you're going to struggle, but just to sort of say like, what are your values? What do you foresee motherhood to be like? What do you think that you'll want to be like as a parent? Because I just those are things that I guess I just never thought I'd find challenging. But obviously at the time when you're in the depth of it, it, it is. And you go, and like a lot of women and, and fathers too, but obviously women who go through that role of motherhood often go through a healing transition with their own experience of being parented. That's mm. common and, and I, I'm not immune to that either. I, you know, there was definitely characteristics of my own childhood that I don't want to repeat with my own children and, and having to break those cycles. It first will be aware of them for one and then, you know, be mindful enough to break them. But yeah, I just wish it was more of a conversation, just more of a, hey, let's talk about these really quite profound changes. Because you know what the conversations were? They were like, what kind of pram are you going to have? Or um, you know, what type of bottles are you going to use? Or what kind of swaddles do you have? What brand bassinet do you have? None of that matters. Honestly, none of that matters. It makes absolutely no difference. Those things at the end of the day, they are not the important conversations that we should be having. The important conversations are like, tell me about you as a human being. What do you value? And what do you want yourself to be like as a human being, as a parent, as a spouse? Do you know what I mean? These are the conversations that really set us up. And it's not to say that like, oh, well, I said I'm going to be this person today and so then when I have my baby, I have to be this person. No, but we're planting seeds. Oh, hold on. I hadn't really thought about it from this perspective before. Actually, these are the things that I need to be aware of or these are the things that I should be just mindful of or just create mental space for, really. No one cares what, like, brand bassinet you have. Nothing. None of that matters. Get whatever you can do that suits your family with the resources that you have. What really matters is us and our human experience throughout and post are the things that I think we need to talk about, which is why we're here. You've created this space where we, we can have these conversations because they're honest and they're real and they're authentic. And I hope that it plants seeds for other people listening as well. I hope so too. And you mentioned that when you did fall pregnant with your son, in addition to finding out you had a hyperactive thyroid, you felt the lowest 
that you'd ever felt. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak about that because, as you said, very, very different experience to with your daughter's pregnancy. Um, yes. So there was a lot of changes that happened in a very short period of time. Mm. Naturally, for a lot of human beings, when we go through change, sometimes it's uncomfortable. As a person who does like structure, routine, consistency, familiarity, you know, it was a very challenging time with just those transitions. However, I was excited for them. I was excited for the changes. I was excited to move cities. I was excited for new opportunities. I was excited to work in a different space and take my daughter to lots of activities and events and that kind of thing. Two weeks after we moved here, I found out I was pregnant. And I don't really talk about this just because I am extremely mindful that it can be triggering for people. So if it's okay, if I just maybe just mention just a slight trigger warning around unwanted pregnancy. Mm. So if that is uncomfortable for, for some listeners, I suppose I just want to be sensitive to that. Um, I, I can look at it from then. I can look at it from now. Now I knew that the universe had a plan for me. Um, obviously if I had not fallen pregnant as a surprise, I would not have ever have been able to get back into the mental space of preparing for conception like I did for my daughter. So for my daughter, I was, as I mentioned, like I did like months and months worth of preparation. I knew when I was ovulating and all of that kind of stuff. Because of the experience that I had throughout pregnancy and postpartum for her, there is utterly not a single chance I would have ever fallen pregnant on purpose again. So the only way that the universe (laughs) saw that for me to have my boy was to go, right, well, this woman's not going to do it on her own, so we're going to have to, like, just pop that baby in. So um, when I found out that I was pregnant with him, this is just going back to how I felt at that time. I did not want the pregnancy. I did not want to be pregnant. I wasn't ready to be pregnant. I was still very much trying to heal from the mental struggles that I'd gone through with my daughter. I knew that. I I knew that I was not in a mentally strong point in, you know, my my postpartum. I knew that. And that's why I was getting help. And and that's why we had a massive change as well. So we had a change for lots of reasons, but one of them really was, and again, because my husband was struggling, we just needed to change. And it's been the best decision that we could have made. Like living down here is just glorious. We love it. I wish we had done it sooner, but anyway, hindsight's a beautiful thing. Um, so I knew that I was not ready. I was still in the depths of, I think I was grieving the possibility of experiencing my daughter when I was happy. So I knew that I, it's not to say that I was always unhappy, but I was struggling. I would mm-hmm. say 80% of my postpartum was a struggle. And I was excited to move and excited to have new changes and new opportunities because I thought, this is it. I'm going to build a new friendship connection. I'm going to start a new job. We're going to have a fresh start. It's going to be wonderful. I'm getting mental health support for myself. I'm finally going to have the postpartum experience with my daughter that I had been working so hard to have. And then when I found out I was pregnant, I was just angry because I didn't want to be pregnant. I really didn't. I was angry at myself. I was angry at my husband. <laughs> and I just kind of thought I'm running out of time in a spiral from there. And um, probably some of the darkest, and I mentioned before, like I've gone through stages of depression in my life before. And, and I mentioned to you before, like it was same, same, but different. It was different because this was probably the first time in my life that I did not care if I lived or died. Yeah. And I did not see meaning in my life. I was not hopeful that it would get any better. If anything, I was convinced that it would get far, far worse, given the fact that I was now doubling my children and my stress. Um, 
I was never at a point, and I guess I should say that, I was never at a point where I had any suicidal plans, probably because of my daughter, though. But I probably, I, I had no fear. I had no fear of anything happening to me. I really didn't. I, I could have got hit by a car tomorrow. And there just was not that part of my brain that was worried about death. I guess. And those were my thoughts. They were really dark thoughts. And I don't really talk about them a lot because I know that I have to be careful. And I, I hope that this is received, you know, compassionately from your listeners, because I am extremely aware of the struggles that so many families go through, have a baby. And I absolutely, it makes me sick to my stomach, honestly, even just like now, but it, it's real. It's, it's on, I'm just being brutally honest because I, I never, ever, ever want somebody to think, you don't deserve to be a parent because you had this tough thinking. And I just, I never want to take that away like from other people's losses or, or infertility and, and those struggles. So it's a really sensitive thing. And it's a really hard thing to talk about, but you know what? I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I'm not the only one. I've even got to just cry. Like even now just thinking about it, I'm not the only one who has thought I do not want to be pregnant right now. You know what I mean? Like I'm not the only one who's thought that. And I guess like I'm comfortable sharing with you, Beck, and having this conversation because it is real and it is honest and it makes me very sad to think back to how I was at that time. Now he's just the absolute light of my life. He, you know, like he's just absolutely glorious and, and it's so strange because I've actually had people say to me, you know, was there a reason why you didn't terminate the pregnancy? And, and that could have been an option, of course. Um, the reason why I chose to continue with that pregnancy was simply because I guess I had faith enough that the feeling that I was having, the thoughts that I was having was temporary. And I don't know why. I think it was just something in my core, something in like my deeper parts of my soul that just kind of knew that he was meant to be here. I didn't know why. I didn't fully agree. I was fighting my emotions. But do you know what I mean? Like it's a really interesting mental space to try to describe because it's like this real dual conflicting thoughts first feelings you know what I mean like it's so it's so opposite but I did feel like in the really deep parts of my soul I know that this feeling won't last and I know that this will pass and I had faith that it would pass and I had faith all these other things are changing for a positive and I'm getting mental health support and I'm you know I am reaching out and I am talking about these things and so I was again like just confident that it wouldn't last forever but it was it was truly like I actually couldn't even talk about being pregnant, I would say, for probably the first four or five months. Like it took me a very long time to even just like say, hey, I'm having another baby because I would have this instant feeling of wanting to vomit or cry. I'd just start to panic. I'd just have this sickness in my stomach, this lump in my throat. Um, I get blurred vision, like the full-blown panic symptoms. I couldn't even say the words, you know, and it took such a long time before I'd even prepare. Like I didn't buy any baby stuff. I didn't think until I was like 35 weeks pregnant because every time I walked into a baby store, I just was sick. Every time I even thought about it, um, I'd actually, this was how unprepared I was when we moved. I'd actually sold all of my newborn stuff. I got rid of everything. I had no pram. I had no bassinet, no breast pump. All of the newborn kind of stuff, like bath seat, clothes, socks, onesies, swaddles, we'd actually gotten rid of 99% of all of that stuff because I was like, there was absolutely no cognitive way that I could make myself pregnant again. Not going to happen. Anyway, so it took a very long time for me to even just get to a point where I could even just buy any baby gear. 
I don't think I actually posted on my private social media until I was about 36 weeks pregnant. Um, a lot of family didn't even know. So it was really hard. And, you know, we talk a lot about mentalization of motherhood with my clients, but it's the process of mentalizing what your role of motherhood looks like and also the being of your child and who they are going to be and what they look like and what their little characteristics are going to be like, etc. And um, it took a very long time for me to be able to mentalize the fact that I was actually having another baby without going into um, a really dark physical space. And it's interesting because then when he was born, I almost flipped. So with my daughter, I would say, because I was in shock, I think it probably took a couple of days. I was sort of a little bit distant from her at first, like for the first day or so, just like I was there and I was present, of course, but I was just like, I was just in shock, honestly. But with my son, almost instantly wanted to protect him, instantly wanted to protect him. And I think because of, and I even now, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it'll ever go away, this feeling of I feel immense guilt for the feelings and thoughts that I had in my early stages of his pregnancy, even though I couldn't control it. It's not my choice. I didn't mean to think or feel that way. But I I guess I just never want it to be um, misperceived that I'm not grateful for him or that I don't love him or that, you know, excited to yeah, be his mother or anything like that. But it's almost like when he was born, I became extra protective because I was like, I almost lost you and lost myself within this this journey. I can't, I have to do everything that I can to advocate for you, to love you, to protect you and do everything that I possibly can. Um, Anyway, very different stories. (laughs) And firstly, I just want to say thank you for trusting me with that part of your story. And I, again, tears in my eyes because, as you said, you're apologising so much for your lived experience. Mm. And I suppose that's hard even for me to sit here and hear that because that's how you felt. That's how you felt. I don't attach value to that in terms of your motherhood or who you are as a mother or in terms of you as a person you know and it makes me sad I suppose that we're in a society where we feel we have to do that or where we are judged regardless of whether we had an easy let's use that in quotes an easy mm-hmm. pregnancy journey or an easy conception journey that we have to justify that or that we have to add a disclaimer to our experience like this is mm-hmm. what I went through I'm still grateful for like we know we know uh-huh. And I'm, yeah, I guess I wanted to reflect on that for a moment because I I hope you know that there's no judgment here. Like, as you said, so many, so many mothers will have felt that regardless of the conception journey that they experienced and that that's okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard to talk about because I think there is so much, I think there's just so many things that could could go wrong in understanding. Mm. Anyway. It is the lived experience, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening and giving me the opportunity to express that. Of course. And I guess, so you've had a really, let's say, shitty nine months pregnancy. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. Um, You were seeing your psychologist. How did that help you through that time? Hugely, I think, yeah. Like we talked all about motherhood and identity and, my again, going back to values and coping strategies and and she gave me some really practical strategies for like how do you prepare for having a newborn when you have a toddler what happens if you go into labor at night time and I was quite nervous about having a very fast labor given that my daughter's active labor was quite quick you know I was about 30 minutes away from my hospital that I was birthing at at the time and she was trying to give me some strategies on that so I think it was good because yeah it really just gave me a space where we could talk about motherhood and what I was feeling and processing I think I was grieving a lot I grieved my postpartum because I didn't get the village you know 
talk a lot about the village and I didn't get any village for my daughter and for my son was a, a little bit better because we had moved and I had access to family members although not two seconds down the road but they were there when I needed them and that was just absolutely amazing so postpartum for my son I had a bit more of a village but postpartum for my daughter I felt very very alone and I get to grieve that and to go through the grieving of again what does this village look like and I think also adapting my own expectations of what a quote-unquote village looks like and I became a lot more forgiving for myself because I needed to come to terms with the fact that our educators in my daughter's daycare were part of our village. And even though it was paid support, it was still a huge support for us. And I think I had to shift what were my ideas. You know, this idealised version of a village for me did not exist. So I needed to create a different definition for us of what is this village now I feel very blessed and very lucky We where we are living now in Brisbane. We have access to a lot more family and when I need them, they will be there. I just got to pick up the phone and someone will come and, and we're very, very lucky. It's a different experience this time around, which I'm extremely grateful for. But different challenges, like I had to go back to work four months postpartum for my son and that was really big struggle for me. And that was at the same time that I started my business and, you know, working in the space. But it's just been it's just been a bit different. I've, I'm holding on to, because I know that this is my last baby. I 100% may have made sure of that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm holding on to things. I don't feel like I have to rush it this time. Like for my daughter, I was like, quick, let's get to the next stage because it'll be better if, if then, if this, if then, then it'll get better, you know. Whereas this time around, like he's, he's, he's two in a couple of weeks' time and, and, you know, we still breastfeed, we still co-sleep. He still takes bottle. He does take bottle, thank goodness. But, yeah, I, I don't feel like I have to rush it. I can just savor these moments because I've had to rush other different other stages of my journey with, with him, with both of them really. But, yeah, same thing but different. <laughs> yeah, coming out of the pregnancy that you had, coming into the postpartum with your son, I guess my question is when um, you felt like you saw the light, I suppose, like when did the clouds part, even just a little bit? Like was there a moment that you realised anxiety, yeah. depression was not all-consuming anymore? Yeah, you know what? That's such an excellent question. So when I was pregnant with my son, I was seeing a psychologist, as, as I've just mentioned, but she'd actually moved clinics, which was fine. So I, I worked with her for a full year, and that's not my first experience. I, I think, you know, just normalising that psychologists have psychologists too and very, like, many stages of my, my entire life on and off working with different clinicians, and, and that's how we explored my neurodiversity in my early 20s. But I guess I just want to stipulate that too. Like, it's very normal and it's wonderful and it's great, and we should be very open to seeing mental health clinicians and even at my I myself am not afraid to do that. Um, but I had to start with a different clinician when my son was born because the other clinician had moved on. And, and it's so funny, like in Brisbane, I was nervous to find a clinician that was too local, <laughs> big city. But in my mind, I was like, oh, because they'll know me. Anyway, so my my psychologist, I'll, be, I'll laugh if she listens to this, but um, she, she's over in Western Australia. So oh. I found somebody who was, I just, I, I think I needed that boundary. But anyway, so I, I re-engaged with, I re-engaged again with psychology um, with her, I think I was probably, I don't think I had returned to work yet. So I was probably about, yeah, two or three months postpartum with Ollie. And, and she's just been magnificent. But I think, again, because I had started um, a business and I had two under two. And look, Ollie didn't take bottles straight away. And there was still some other challenges there as well. But you know what? Really, I think, if I have to be brutally, brutally honest, again, coming back to the resistance. The real thing that clicked for me where I saw more better days than harder days was when I surrendered to the fact that I needed medication to help me with that. 
It took me a very long time because I was like, no, I'm going to do all, I'm going to go see naturopath. And I did. And that was also helpful. I'm going to go see acupuncture. And I did. And that was also helpful. I'm going to you know, make sure my diet as well. And I'm going to start exercising. And I was doing all of these lifestyle things and I was seeing my psychologist and I was trying really hard to get balance with my work. And I was getting supervision, I was doing all the right things. And I just kind of thought, why am I struggling still so much? Like I have this I don't know if there's ever a balance but like I was doing the best that I could you know I was trying so hard but like I was why was I still having more hard days than good and um, I think it was probably the third consecutive visit with my GP and I had to get a new GP because we moved again and she's just glorious she's this most beautiful GP and after the third time of me crying to her and she said Ash why aren't we taking medication and I just said you know what I don't really know at this point I don't know what was stopping me because I had been fighting for such a long time. And the, the honest truth is, is because in previous stage of my life, I was taking the medication then and I just, it just didn't, I didn't like it. It made me feel really awful and it um, affected other things in my health that I didn't like. And it took a very long time for me to come off that. I was on that for a couple of years and it took a long time to wean off that. It was just a really unpleasant experience. And so I was scared. I was scared to have to go back and have to do that all over again. And I said that to my GP and she said, ah, there's so many different types out there. I'm like, I know, <laughs> I know that, but I was just scared. You know, I was just scared because of how hard it was last time. And I just don't want to do this trial and error kind of thing. She's like, start this. Um, a lot of women find that this is really like helpful. It's really gentle. Let me know how you go. And I kick myself even now. I should. I, I started it three years too late, and not too late. Not to say that anything's too late, because look, everything has has led to the person that I am right now having this conversation. Everything has led to me being motivated to do extra study and, you know, hold space for my patients and hopefully be a better parent. And, and I know that I needed to go through these adversities in order to continue to grow and to continue to be, I suppose, the person that I am now. So it's not to say that medication wouldn't have allowed me to do that, but I know that I needed to go through this journey, maybe just to lock my ego down a little bit more, which was probably needed. And, and I don't know. I, I don't think I'm a particularly arrogant person. Not. I hope that doesn't come across by any stretch. But I think at the time, I was at the time of me being a very early career psychologist, in I suppose it wasn't even that long ago, really, but, you know, almost 10 years ago, it was like you can't just you you can't have self disclosure like you can't share these things and then it really shamed well I felt and I and I think that you know I work a lot with other clinicians and we do peer supervision and I know that other clinicians have felt the same you know you feel the sense of shame and that you, you like this moral high standing like you can't have this and then be on the opposite end and then still be giving advice you know and so it almost like I had shamed myself out of being really honest and being really real. And that's the thing, like my my symptoms weren't just short term. We're talking years. Like by the time I got to, you know, really accepting and surrendering that I needed that additional treatment support, it was good two and a half years into my, that's a long time. To, and even sooner, really, because of the antenatal experience. So we're talking probably three, three and a half years. That's a long time. I was tired. I was tired for lots of reasons, but also emotionally I was tired. And I really, I think what I needed to do was, give myself a little bit of extra you know, support. And I finally did that. And honestly, that in, I still see my psychologist now. I've got appointments booked till Easter next year. Like we have a great catch up. Yeah. So I think that compounded with therapy and, and, you know, I think I've become less harsh in my expectations of myself. And I think I've just become softer and a bit more gentle towards myself. And I think I've become a lot more confident in my role of what motherhood actually looks like for me and what I really value. And I'm a, 
much more confident parent now and and I feel confident in my approach and and the things that I want to you know teach my children and the way that I want them to feel and don't get me wrong like I still get frustrated of course and I still get overwhelmed and kids make an absolute mess and I'm like my daughter is so loud and my ears like I hear the I can actually feel the vibration of my eardrums it's like a genuine physical feeling so don't get me wrong like I'm not sitting over here thinking that like oh I'm just all happy roses all the time I definitely get overwhelmed I definitely get frustrated you know kids rip open my porridge and there's oats all over the floor and days ago they got into my sprinkles and you know they put hundreds and thousands all over the floor and they come in like little deprived monkeys and they're sitting on the ground like picking them up like like they're eating grubs out of the ground like they're little you know and I was like you know what that gives me 10 seconds so I can actually pack our bag and get us in the car like you do you so I actually let them I was like you're quiet for five seconds Anyway, so I think what I've done is I've just, you know, I've just become more confident in my expectations for myself and my parenting style that I try to have. And I really try to focus on, yeah, humanness in the relationship that I have with my children. And like, it's human to get frustrated and it's human to feel sad and it's human to get scared. And, you know, like when my daughter went in for surgery a couple of weeks ago, she's like, mommy, um, what did she say? She's like, this is weird. She says, this is weird. But I'm nervous and I'm excited for my icy pole. I was like, yeah, cool. There's a good range of different emotions there and they're beautiful. Like all of them are extremely normal to have, man. I would be excited for an icy pole too and I'd be nervous about having surgery that you've never had before. So, (laughs) But also then try to give myself the same compassion when I'm feeling overwhelmed and frustrated too that, you know what, this is a human experience and that's okay. Maybe before I let you go, do you have one piece of advice for anyone listening who's navigating, you know, anxiety, depression, intrusive thoughts, any of that in their perinatal period? Oh, gosh, I have so many things. Um, I think first and foremost, we just need to be kind to ourselves because we are really our, our own worst critics and we can be so critical of every little thing that we do. And, of course, the more critical we are, the more that that compounds and magnifies. And so I think if I can just say, you know, like, it's okay if you're finding it challenging, because it probably is. (laughs) Like, hands down, it it would be challenging. And so, like, where's the compassion? Where's the self-compassion kindness that you're having towards yourself? I think sometimes we think that we can't. And so go back to that human experience. Like, this is is part of being human. It's like when we're overwhelmed, when we're sleep-deprived, when we've got children screaming at us or, you know, we've got appointments coming out of our eyeballs because you're trying to remember all these different things, um, yeah, last time I checked, you weren't a robot. Like, of course, we're going to feel a bit overwhelmed and, and you know, taken aback by these things and feel like we're always got, you know, people demanding things from us. And that in its nature is exhausting, of course. And so I think, can we stop trying to pretend that we shouldn't be exhausted? Like, I think, again, we come back to labeling it. Like, if we just na- name it, like, you know, the name of detainment, we just name, you know what, this experience that I'm having right now is actually really quite overwhelming. And how can I be kind to myself instead of critical towards myself? Um, in saying that, though, please reach out and get the support if you feel, if you are finding that it is, again, like I think I mentioned earlier, but when does it impact on your functioning? When does it impact on your ability to go to work, have a spouse, you know, see your friends, look after yourself, attend appointments? do grocery shopping, you know, all of these kinds of things. And if if you answer that question and you say, oh, well, I haven't been doing this and I did stop doing that and, you know, doing things that are different to my regular, quote-unquote, regular way of being, then I would say probably is impacting on your functioning and that's a beautiful opportunity for you to say, hey, these are might maybe some flags here. Let's go and, and reach out and get support because I waited longer than what I probably should have and I um, 
I was too resistant. <laughs> but also make sure you're talking to the right people because I think mm. I look back and I realised I probably wasn't, you know, it's not to blame myself and I don't want women to feel like they are, they have to be blamed either. But, you know, as a, as a health clinician, we need to be asking the right questions and we need to be creating a safe space where, where women do feel like they can disclose how they are actually feeling. So, again, it goes both ways. Um, but please don't be resistant to, to reaching out and getting some support. There are so many services out there, so many people that want to help, even just if it's non-professional, you just go find a mum's group or an online forum parenting group or something like that. We just, you can just like debrief and vent or share experiences or whatever it might be because it can be really isolating. And it's, you know, it's bizarre because we're often all feeling or have felt a very similar way, you know, just in regards to like, yeah, sleep deprivation and feeling overwhelmed or whatever it might be. And yet at the same time, it feels very isolating. So please don't feel like you can't reach out. There's so many places out there that want to help. You've got to find the right places. And also what I say to people is too, is like if you go to a particular service or a clinician and you don't feel like they're a right fit for you, please don't stop trying. It just might not be the right fit for you. And that's so fine. That's really okay. There's so many more other people out there, counsellors, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, you know, occupational therapists there's so many people out there who really 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 will be the right fit for you you just got to find the right one um, I often use the similar comparison of like if you get one bad haircut do you stop getting your hair cut or do you just find a new hairdresser so if you find a therapist and they're not the right therapist for you you don't stop going to therapy you just find a new one and you find someone that you gel with that gets you that validates you that helps you feel safe and you stick with them. <laughs> so um, please reach out and don't wait too long and, and don't be stubborn like I was being stubborn for such a long time and, and, you know, allow the treatment that's there because you probably will find that, you know, when we do a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B and a little bit of column C, you might actually start to feel a lot better. And I'm so, so grateful to you for sharing all of that so openly. You are such a beautiful, beautiful soul still learning, still human, and you do such incredible work. And I know how hard it is to come on and share, because as you said, there was a lot of resistance, but also internalized shame as a psychologist. So I am so, so grateful to you for sharing this experience. And I know that someone listening will just will just be in awe of you so thank you Ash honestly thank you for giving me this opportunity and yeah the space and and again your kindness as well yeah I I knew I didn't need to prepare too much because I knew that we would have a beautiful conversation and you're so beautiful and kind and authentic and I knew that it would be easy to, to open up and have this conversation with you so I'm extremely grateful Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode, please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content. Join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website, perinatalstoriesaustralia.com. If these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now, then come back another time. Protecting your mental health is the number one priority. As always, this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.